there's a lot more to the idea of commitment that lies in, I would say, how you can reduce the initial activation energy to make that commitment internally. That happens from an individual perspective. You know, like I can have this set of values in my mind, which if I actually agree with them, will make all these other decisions that I make and all these other commitments that I make so much easier. In a sense, it's lowering the barrier to commitment through some indirect causality of belief. You see? And so it's like, I have this, this, this network of things like, okay, family matters, right? You know, I, I want to take care of my family members. I, I, I value them in a lot of different ways. And the commitment then to actually, you know, scheduling a vacation out to go see them. Maybe you live in, in different states or something like that in America. And, and then scheduling the decision to actually go out and visit them is just so much easier because family matters. And it's like, oh, of course it matters. I have to go do this. It's not, there's no mechanism of doubt that ever transpires in the mind because family matters, right? And it is almost these, these rooted senses of value that instinctively push you to make different decisions in ways that are almost unconscious and muscle memory-like. Welcome back to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast. In this conversation, Jonathan and I will be talking about a series of questions related to practical awareness and the capabilities behind why we struggle to commit. We'll start off as the usual way, reading a couple questions, and then we'll dive in and try and unpack a lot of these different questions and try and find some sort of an answer. Yeah, so thanks, Joe. Um, just to kind of reiterate, again, this topic will focus on why we struggle to make commitments. Uh, primarily, the questions we're going to ask are going to revolve around distraction. Uh, one's minimum threshold for distraction, and we'll explain exactly what that means. Um, and then we're also going to talk a little bit into value hierarchies, how we have these intrinsic value hierarchies that undergirth a lot of our unconscious processes uh, in terms of how they influence our conscious actions and decision-making thereof. So we can kind of weigh in how distraction and then one's value hierarchy plays into this whole process of actually you know, making a commitment that whatever degree of difficulty or activation energy requires. And then lastly, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about this idea of the law of attraction, which is a pretty popular concept as to how to manifest your destiny, whatever that means. Um, and, and, you know, at another level, we're also going to jump into conversations around impermanence and, and kind of bind that to the law of attraction as these different states that you want to achieve are, you know, somewhat transient in nature. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, let's just kind of throw in a flag, a whole host of flag posts around the, the, the first question, which is why we struggle to commit. So let's, let's just jump into it, Joe. Well, I think firstly, when we, when we discuss commitment and how people kind of perceive commitment from the outside is usually some sort of a, a contractual relationship that you have with an entity, an individual, or a responsibility. And I think those three are pretty important to delineate because firstly, people look at commitments between partners. They look at your relationship commitment and what that means is what you're gaining, but also what that in, it implies that you are now foregoing. And then with obviously an employer or some sort of a, a job, you have a commitment for your services and your skills in return for some compensation. And then lastly, you make commitments to yourself or the people around you. But most importantly, when you make a commitment to yourself, 
that last one is the only one that actually lacks some sort of a contractual relationship or some sort of a binding agreement because there is only one party, although it is still a commitment. And I think as we go through and describe how these different relationships exist within our own minds and the way we approach different commitments, it will help us kind of untangle these as we start to disassemble what it means when you fail to follow through on a commitment and how those approaches vary as you look at the contractual relationship with which you stand. Yeah. So I think you made a pretty good distinction there in that a lot of what we're going to be talking about is largely internal commitments, because I mean, at some level you can quickly validate an external commitment. You know, you have this agreement with your boss, you did it or you didn't do it. And your boss can tell you pretty quickly whether or not that commitment was fulfilled. But on the internal side, you are the only individual that can really justify your own level of success in fulfilling that initial commitment you created. And, you know, I think this is really where this initial set of standards factors in into how an individual actually justifies whether or not a commitment was, you know, successfully reached. Because it's in, in some sense really arbitrary, right? I mean, I could I could tell myself that I had this commitment and, you know, what actually happened in nature is that uh, I did did it a little bit differently than I was expecting, but I can still come back to my commitment and said, hey, you know, I did it a different way than I expected, but I still reached the commitment. You, you see what I'm saying? It's almost like there's this variable methodology that can achieve this, this outcome of a commitment. Anyways, I, I don't want to get us too too far down the rabbit hole of, of self-validation for the commitment. I, I again, just want to kind of focus back on the idea of why is it really tough to make commitments to yourself from an internal perspective, why it's really challenging to follow through with it. And, and, and I'm not even saying, you know, agnostic of the degree of difficulty of the commitment. Like, you know, maybe you want to become a doctor and, and you're starting way back before even undergraduate and you don't even have any understanding of biology or any of that stuff, right? Getting to that doctor degree can seem like a really, really big commitment. But in, in reality, you know, there's a lot of minor steps that you can take that might, you know, reduce the level of commitment, which is another another point of, of its own. Um, but anyways, uh, coming coming back down to it, you know, let's just, I guess, figure out some of the basic principles around commitment that kind of barricade individuals from following through at a generic level. So I'll, I'll kind of just pose that to you. What are these kind of general barricades in thinking process that that it that happens when someone doesn't follow through? I think that when when people kind of evaluate why they fail to complete a task they set forward for themselves or even try and approach these really lofty goals and kind of go forward with some sort of a, an idealistic plan of how they're going to accomplish it or or fail to just commit to something i've really tried to to parse this apart and try and see where the fallacies actually kind of lie because is it is it's not so much as a matter of people are lying to themselves that they want to do something like become a doctor like they may genuinely want to go through the process of of changing their life or becoming a doctor or achieving some sort of a a, a position within a company or something whatever their internal you know problem is that they're trying to solve i try and look at what the more intrinsic versus extrinsic motivating factors are behind the commitments people are looking to make. And then whether it's a self-imposed barrier or actually a barrier derived from ignorance, that they aren't actually as fully committed to the idea as they may self-perceive that they are. And in that lack of full, true full commitment, they fail to recognize some of the intrinsic barriers or challenges that actually get in the way of completing some 
some really difficult commitment or challenge. And an example of that would be something like, let's stick with the example of becoming a doctor. So you say you want to become a doctor, you start taking the pre-med classes, and then the MCAT comes in the way. And it's, it's really substantial. It's pretty difficult. It's a hard exam to get through. And that may be a barrier for some people who have this idea, but maybe aren't fully committed to it because they just fully aren't aware of what all the different challenges are. That would be an example of an extrinsic barrier to entry or at least challenge that gets in the way that tests the motivation some people have to go through the full process. Then when looking at some of the intrinsic barriers to commitment, I start to pull apart what the the initial baseline motivating factors are for people and how that eventually factors into their hierarchy of priorities that they set forward for themselves. Because I've seen it many times where people describe this, this, um, set of endeavors that they want to pursue. And then they want a lot of these lofty goals. And then people always agree who wouldn't want some of these goals. It's fantastic to be, you know, a, a founder and then also be an Olympian and like all these incredible things. But at some point there's a, there's but, a meter of realism. But is, it, is it actually that valuable to achieve that? Right. Cause I mean, there is this societal layer of validation. And again, you know, the societal layer of validation can differ from the internal layer of validation, you know, that you're kind of referencing talking about their internal priority system, right? And, and that, you know, that can be kind of broken apart, obviously, which is what we're probably going to try to do here. Um, but, you know, there's a lot more to the idea of commitment that lies in, I would say, how you can reduce the initial activation energy to make that commitment internally. That happens from an individual perspective, you know, like I can have this set of values in my mind, which if I actually agree with them, will make all these other decisions that I make and all these other commitments that I make so much easier. In a sense, it's lowering the barrier to commitment through some indirect causality of belief, mm. you see? And so it's like, I have this, this, this network of things like, okay, family matters, right? You know, I, I want to take care of my family members. I, I, I value them in a lot of different ways. And the commitment then to actually, you know, scheduling a vacation out to go see them. Maybe you live in, in different states or something like that in America. And, and then scheduling the decision to actually go out and visit them is just so much easier because family matters. And it's like, oh, of course it matters. I have to go do this. It's not, there's no mechanism of doubt that ever transpires in the mind because family matters, right? And it is almost these, these rooted senses of value that instinctively push you to make different decisions in ways that are almost unconscious and muscle memory-like, right? And, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of like the, the unconscious meat that I'm referring to when I talk about the idea of commitment. But then there's, you know, the, the conscious mechanisms of what, what types of thoughts are you engaging with when you're thinking about this given commitment, like, you know, the idea of how confident do you believe that this decision will be accepted by others, for example, um, or how confident that you will accept the decision that you end up making, right? Like those are other parameters as well that are kind of factored in. Anyways. I mean, that's a great question. Yeah. How, how confident are you that you will accept the decision that you will end up making? Mm -hmm. That's a very broad question. I mean, there's so many implications to that. And I think I'm going to repeat it one more time just so I myself can try and break it down. How confident are you? in your, you know, eventually it's how confident are you in the decision that you will end up having to make? You know, you're going to make a decision. 
you will have to. It's required for you to do so. Now, how confident will you be in yourself? The layers to this question are, are really interesting because it, it really gets to the point of you have to understand at, a, at the deepest level you're capable of what your internal hierarchies are mm -hmm. because you know you're going to have to make this some sort of a decision eventually. And then from that decision, you never want to be looking backwards because a lack of confidence in decision means that you will be second guessing yourself. And I think as you pointed out earlier, one of the fundamental rules of the game that we're playing, which is life, is never doubt yourself twice. Or how, how did you phrase it? It was- Yeah, don't, don't repeat your doubts was, was one of the rules that we, that we uh, were talking about before we actually started this episode. We're kind of thinking about the game of awareness as a function of us making commitments and actually sticking to our commitments. And that, you know, we are aware of all these other decisions, you know, the landscape of decision-making is always presenting itself to us. And it's up to us whether or not we're aware of the given opportunity. And then secondly, whether or not we actually agree to take that decision, right? Maybe you, like, like we were saying, you, you accept the idea that even if you make this decision, you'll be happy with the fact that you made the decision, which is something very challenging that it is almost agnostic of outcome in a sense. It is, again, rooted into this value hierarchy that aligns with this internal priority system that is, is very diverse in a, in a sense in that you will never find a, a set of individuals with an actually true, authentic, shared set of value hierarchies. They might tell you, yeah, we have these shared senses of, of hierarchy, but then, you know, how aware are they really, you know, if they're not a re recognizing that they're, you know, very different and distinct creatures, then there's another thing to be said about that whole that whole thing kind of, yeah. you know, inauthentic then affects your ability to understand the commitment making that you will actually have. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, let's, let's kind of shift gears a little bit here because I think we've, we've entered a lot of different interesting elements of commitment. And I do want to kind of root into this idea of awareness of, of ideas of other commitments and, and see how just at a bottom line, the power of someone's awareness factors into their ability to make a commitment. Um, and so, you know, we, we had this, this question that we prefaced before about what is this minimum level of distraction uh, that will allow you to actually reach your commitment? And I, I want you to break that down a little bit for, for our viewers here. So there was kind of two ways that I was breaking apart how I looked at the fundamental factors that that impact your capabilities and ability to follow through on a commitment. And the first one being what things get in the way of you not achieving a responsibility or following through. One of which are the numerous and infinite distractions that we have available to us at all times. And we've been through this many times in the podcast. But the way I tried to per perceive it and approach it from this first perspective is to you and the listener, what do you think is the is the minimum threshold for distraction for you to be offset from your goal. So again, to the doctor perspective or becoming a doctor, there's obviously many obstacles and many milestones along that pathway that you must achieve. And when thinking about these broader timelines, it's over the course of a decade or more, right? It's a long process as are many other goals and processes people go through. For that, what is the minimum threshold that will distract you from staying on timeline track to those goals. Mm -hmm. And I, the reason I wanted to try and break this apart is because I feel like that is one of the major reasons why people attribute them not being successful for what they're 
they're looking at. I have too many distractions. There's too many things happening in life. I'm trying to maintain relationships and bills and friendships and all that. There's, there's always a reason, right? And a lot of people go, oh, it's just an excuse. And there's all the hardos that are coming on talking about, well, you just have to grind. You just have to get the drive. But I really want to break it down to fundament, fundamental psychology of why we are distracted and what the minimum threshold is. How is it a level of resilience? Because as we discussed this, this capability or this threshold is in itself static, which means it moves around. It's not a fixed amount. And there's people who are really, really good and determined that nothing will get in their way. Nothing will stop them from achieving their goals. And we hear this spoken about all the time, especially from professional athletes, mm -hmm. people that require a lifestyle of dedication to their craft must have some level of dedication and determination that nothing will hinder their success. And my favorite way to approach this, especially with people who are questioning what type of career or what type of, of things they should pursue is how many no's would it take for you to quit? And I think when I ask that to people who are like, should I be, should I be a, a, this kind of profession or this type of hobby? And what is my passion? And I was like, okay, it's really easy to imagine yourself being it because we're, we're imaginative creatures. But when I step back and I say, how many times would it take for someone to look in your face and say no for you to quit? And if the answer is never, then I say, keep going with it. I would agree. I, well, I mean, in some sense, every, every moment someone is doubting you, it is a point of distraction from your commitment. You've made a commitment to yourself that you're going to get it done, right? Then anything that gets in your way to getting that commitment done is technically a distraction, right? And, and we can kind of validate, you know, maybe there's good distractions, maybe there's bad distractions and so forth. But at, at ground level truth, right? Anything that gets in the way of your commitment is what we would define as a distraction. Um, now the other element to this, which I think you described pretty well, uh, that, that I want people to think about is this sense of relative distraction, because as you grow and as you go grow more attuned to the things that actually cause distraction in your life, you will in all likelihood be able to manage more distractions. You'll be able to put more onto your plate in, in an analogous sense. So this is where the real challenge gets. You know, because it really depends on your level of momentum you have with a given commitment. If you find yourself making a lot of good progress towards your commitment, at, at that point in time, it actually, you might be able to handle on a little bit more distraction, right? Because you know you've been making good progress and you know, you know, at least to some degree, and I, and I don't know, maybe I'm just throwing an assumption here and we can kind of, we can kind of battle this out here as to whether or not, you know, if you have a good momentum towards your commitment, it's okay to add in a little bit more distraction. Or if anything, maybe the opposite perspective is that it is the times when you're making good momentum and good progress to your commitment. You know, you're, you're feeling like you're powerful. You're feeling confident. You're feeling like it's achievable, right? All those things are in your back of your mind. That, that's how you know when you're making progress, right? Just to be clear on my terminology here, you know, at that moment in time, you know, is it, Okay, I can I can I can step back and be a little bit more hedonistically pleasurable with myself and, and my mindset. Or is it at that time where you said, "Oh, I can turn up the throttle even more towards this commitment." I mean, there's two perspectives, right? I'm 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 kind of now just grappling with this idea of when you find this point where you feel almost overly confident, let's say, 
in your ability to reach this decision, can you be blinded by your own arrogance to progress? Probably. And I think the way the system is just inherently set up, it will correct you eventually. Mm-hmm. Like I think whatever your level of confidence is or commitment or preparedness for your goals, like the, the society we live in is is fairly rigorous in its structure and it will correct you eventually. And some people get lucky and they're able to, they're able to carry over confidence. They're able to carry their overconfidence a little bit further than some other people. And luck is just when preparedness meets timing. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to how, how prepared you are. And I think that level of preparedness mm-hmm. is eventually what coincides or, or com- combines with that capability to follow through on your commitment. Mm-hmm. It's how prepared are you? And I think when you, when you're failing at accomplishing a commitment, it usually comes from some sort of a distraction that's, you know, in your greater perception of life, which usually comes from, um, the uncertainty you have of your own capability to accomplish that commitment which then comes from your preparedness Mm -hmm. so the uncertainty comes from a lack of preparation and i think those kind of chain together so okay so there's let's kind of just summarize uh the elements that we have so far that we're playing with in our toolkit of commitments so i mean for starters we have this this distraction beast which is constantly in the background undergirding our commitments and ability follow through we have this kind of nested hierarchy of values that plays a role in the background of our mind, influencing our decision-making and desire to follow through. Uh, that's just constantly going on, right? This, this, this hierarchy of values. Does my family matter? Uh, do I, do I want to optimize my, my career over, you know, some other recreational activity or something like that? I don't know. These, these are all values that people can maintain. So we have distractions, we have this hierarchy of values, and now we have this element of also related to these two things of preparedness, right? Your hierarchy of values can tell you some degree of preparedness. Your uh, imminent distractions around in the landscape can tell you another factor of preparedness. And then there's this third element of preparedness that, that I think we wanted to chat about, which was this idea of the law of attraction, which has been popularized. Um, and just to kind of break that down a little bit, the, the central tenet of the law of attraction is to manifest your reality by believing in the manifested reality in a very simple sense. It is almost deluding yourself an expectation will, will occur. And in the process, the, the theory says that, you know, there will be elements that will be brought to you because you're constantly putting your awareness towards those things. So it's like, you know, a self-fulfilling, uh, self-fulfilling pro- prophecy in, in some sense. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of really good insight in the law of attraction, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. When I when I think about the law of attraction, I think one, one of the people or one of the things people most often uh, associate it with is the manifestation, is the universe bringing me things? You know, how do I speak this into existence? That kind of that kind of description of it. And I think that's however you want to believe it almost almost like religion the way the the way that you perceive this existence of a deity or or god or or a faith it's faith like the faith-based religion is what is what gives it sustenance and substance right the more you practice religion in your life the more that god exists in your life like it's a it's a duality that exists and i think that's kind of the same thing as the law of attraction it is not religion related but more so the the habit or the practice of speaking forth forthrightly your in your your goals whatever your 
um, motives are for wanting to create something within the world. And I think that that practice of speaking it forward almost, as we were discussing, deludes your current belief that you are currently capable of having this thing that you want. And you describe yourself as having it already. And you almost build a new framework for you to approach the the challenges that it takes to reach that level mm-hmm. as being there already. You are someone who finishes the race. You are, so I am someone who does this as opposed to like, I want to do this. And it almost bridges the gap that comes between it being a desire and it being a reality. And I've always wondered why that's sort of a, uh, an adjustment increases the success rate, but also looking at what are the fallacies with the law of attraction? How do you not be successful at the law of attraction? How do you, you know, practice it, but it fails. And I think breaking, breaking that down would be some, would be something that would help its success rate. Yeah. So, you know, but the goal of the fallacy of the law of attraction, the, the fallacy of manifesting an expectation that doesn't actually come to fruition, right? So that's what failure looks like here. Why does that happen? Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that can go wrong, right? So I think first and first and foremost, it can go wrong just when the size of the expectation doesn't meet the contextual positioning of the individual. Uh, in other words, you know, if you want to sail boats in the Caribbean, but you live in Denmark you know, um, there's, there's some other steps that you have to take before you, you really, you know, bring that, that concept to reality, or at least, you know, follow through with the commitment that you want to sail away in the Caribbean Isles or whatever. Uh, so like, you know, there is, there is an element of contextual positioning that I would say needs to exist as a prerequisite before engaging with these kind of far off manifestations of destiny. Absolutely. I'm curious though, like what are the assumptions that people make about the law of attraction that I guess those assumptions disregard other important axioms that exist in order for the law of attraction to be successful? Hmm. Yeah. Another assumption I have is that people assume that their expectations have some level of permanence to them Um, and that they might assume that once they've reached the goal, it will exist as this concrete thing that won't change and doesn't require any upkeep or maintenance per se. Right. It's like, okay, I wanted this goal of owning this, you know, million dollar home. No one told me that I had to pay $10,000 a week for these pool cleaners. You know, I wouldn't have done that. And it's like, well, okay, there's something to be said about that goal and you know how you didn't realize its own variability in, in creating that goal for yourself. There's always other factors of that goal. Um, so maybe a better goal in that case was maintain a, a million dollar home. You know, that would be yeah. a better a better goal that you could actually manifest. But outside of the actual goal setting uh, thing, I, I I would say in general this this idea of of permanence just to someone's beliefs or to someone's actions or to someone's expected outcomes from a given commitment play a really really massive role in actually determining someone's success. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, I feel like this, this complicated conversation we're having has actually been very, very simply approached for mm-hmm. a long time. I mean, it's essentially why people have been saying for so long, well, you can talk the talk. Can you walk the walk? Right. That's it. That's like people are speaking what they want to do and become and, and achieve 
every day all around you. And it's actually a level of noise, like literal signal to noise that you as individuals have to learn to kind of pick apart and understand where genuine people that have authentic ideas are coming from. Because I think now with the hyper access to all sorts of information, it's very easy to actually be an imposter mm -hmm. as opposed to actually feeling imposter syndrome. There's a lot of people who may actually be imposters who have somehow finessed a situation where they're talking the talk and now the follow through is, is very challenging. And I think we're going to reach a point where it kind of um, inverts again, or at least we reach a, a change in our, our mm -hmm. differential where now it will correct itself where you will have to show a lot more substantial evidence of your capabilities before going into a situation. And I think we're seeing that on the, the front end already with the, the level of, um, what is it? Background experience that's required for education, the level of, uh, rigor that goes into the preparation for normal university preparation, as well as graduate school is always increasing the difficulty to get the difficulty to get in is increasing every single year the number of people and the the level of um i don't know, just experiences is is always increasing to a level that it was un, unprecedented before at a faster rate so i feel like that is what's leading this change where now you need to be more qualified to get in than you needed to before because i think the, there's not only mm -hmm. an excess amount of people but now the the criteria has changed because you can you can actually talk the talk and they're realizing that not everyone can walk the walk. Right. Okay. So this is an intergenerational problem of commitment making then, right? I think it's certainly cultural. Cause, well, because look, if if the commitment to make to become a doctor, keep keeping with our initial example, was set in the 1950s, let's say, how much easier was it to have that commitment than it is today? You know, I mean, I'm not trying to say it's the generation today has it much harder in this way or that way, but is the is the difficulty to get in proportional to the the new improved output of that career that's what i'm really trying to look at is like okay modern medicine is now far more advanced than it was in 1950 right. there's there's a much broader level of, of therapeutic capabilities that we have but say for any profession it's say it's now harder to become a petroleum engineer has the level of rigor to earn this education or at least be admitted into a program that does this equate the growth that we've seen and the capabilities that they're coming out of with. Has the education also risen? Is it, are, are they coming out even more qualified than ever before? Or is it just more difficult to get in than ever before? Hmm. So is the ability to follow through a commitment more extrinsically mediated now than it was previously? I mean, at, at, a, at a very vague level, I would say yes. If I had to make a decision on the spot here, for sure, I would say it's, it's more challenging. There's just more moving parts in a, in a global economy, not to say, you know, all the different kind of small niches that crop up within these large, you know, just think about how many niche sectors there are within an already complicated topic sector like genetics, right? It's like, okay, it's genetics. And then it's like all these other niche things about next gen sequencing and getting all into the CRISPR stuff and, you know, all these kind of niche things that, and, and, and this is, this is, I think why our society uh, as far as commitment making has to kind of push themselves to go into hyper-specialization is because I can make a commitment to become hyper-specialized because I can kind of sink my my cognitive toes, let's put it like that, and into this really small in scope niche sector, right? It's, it's a much easier commitment and that's kind of how uh, our society has, has structured progress and growth. 
Um, the challenge with that commitment making in general, though, I find is that we're, we're still relying on a very primitive communication software uh, and being able to explain and communicate technical things. We're, we're, we're pretty terrible at that as a species. Um, and, and so there's this kind of cropping up problem with this overlooming sense of, you know, uh, of ease of commitment to these kind of niche jobs. Like it, it's easier to kind of just, just again, just to reiterate, it's easier to kind of pack yourself into this smaller corner and, you know, you're only aware of these small things, hence the, the value of specialization to the, to the human construct. Right. Otherwise, if I was just broadly a genetics engineer, it's like, what exactly do you do? You know, how, how much, how much of distraction can you actually manage when you're at that top level of, of tr control of, you know, I'm doing next gen sequencing, I'm doing, you know, specific cell stuff. I'm looking at, you know, different, like, I don't know. I, I won't even pretend to to know all the specialized sectors of genetics here, but you know, there's a lot. And, and so like, this is actually really interesting because, you know, this really factors from a societal perspective of how we're, we're constructing commitments to other people as well. You know, it's this kind of larger societal issue of, is it inspiring to specialize and pack yourself into a corner? I mean, you know, like some individuals might think so. But, you know, that's that's kind of the route of progress as I see it is we're going to continue over specializing or over special. We're going to continue specializing, which may have the effect of over specialization. I don't know. If, can we be over specialized? Can a, a functioning society actually over specialize their inhabitants? Because I feel like it's it's so specialization is what allows uh, a, a first order society to grow into a second and a third order because now you have economies of scale, you have specialization, you have more of a uniform consensus of, of, uh, what is it? Specialization. So like, I think specialization works given a, uh, desire for rational authenticity, which human behavior does not have it. Like we just discussed, we have this capacity to delude ourselves into believing things and making commitments that will have zero positive outcome, even though we think that they will. And then we can spend our entire life following through a commitment that is only causing more suffering. That's so interesting. How, like as a species, we have the capability psychologically to lie to ourselves. Yes. How, how, why? Right. And, and so like, this is the whole tenet. It's like, okay, yeah, specialization is great. Assuming that the parties that are responsible for communication can't lie, but the basics of human behavior says that, you know, we have to, at some level, you know, we don't have to, but some uh, one one tool set we have is to lie to ourselves to get what needs to be done or convince others that something needs to be done. It must just be a level of like hyper hyper consciousness evol evolution that it was eventually, you know, brought into the the genetic line that allows us to manipulate others within our own species for our own genetic progression. I think that must be the reason that we have the capability to lie well, or deceive well, so, I mean, the, the ability to, to partake in deception. I feel like you don't see in any yeah. other, are there any other species that well, are capable of deceiving? To throw in an annoying philosophical perspective here, there is no truth, right? In, in, in some, some, there's no truth outside of the individual and that I can see something and claim it to be true. You can see something, claim it to be true, but are we seeing the same thing? Probably not. Right. And in other words, we're, we're both lying to ourselves that what we see is the same, right? In any given moment, in pursuit of truth, we have to lie to ourselves 
And, right. And it's kind of this weird philosophical game. But in, in some sense, I think lying is no different than a pursuit of truth from a biological orientation. It's just how can I best adapt myself to work with these other individuals that will sustain my genetic line, perhaps. Like, I, I don't think there's a, a distinction between lying and trust in the, in the neural pathway. Like, if I scan someone's brain, let's say, could I get it 100% accuracy of when someone was lying? You know, mm, I mean, like, I maybe I could is. monitor well, their, not, not their stress and anxiety yeah. patterns and so forth. But instead of monitoring the indirect anxiety and stress, could I look at the brain directly without looking at all the other uh, biomarkers for lying, right? And say, that's what lying looks like in a neurological circuit, you know, like, I... I don't think you could. And, and that's, that's what I mean. I don't think there's any biological distinction for, for lying, uh, which is why it's such a powerful tool for us to convince ourselves to make a given commitment. That's really interesting. They mean, even the concept that we all know that there's, you're a bad liar, right? You know, everyone's been heard someone be called that or been called that. Like, Oh, you're, you're not, I'm not a good liar. Like you're poker face. The it's an almost like this art of deception, this, this capability to deceive I know is, is strengthened on the the psychological profile of of sociopaths or people i mean i'm not saying you're a sociopath if you're a liar but they are compulsive liars and they yeah it's really interesting i think we can bring it back and then look at a look at how we close up this episode but when we're when we're discussing the connection between the law of attraction but also the impermanence that exists in pretty much everything that we experience i think as we discussed before one of the the critical axioms or or theories that we have um, for this game of life is that there is an innate impermanence in everything that we do. Right. Although ourselves as a species are always looking for and deferring to permanence. We're often looking for things that will not change because change is, is a disruptor into our cycles. Although that adaptation is sometimes necessary and the preparedness for it allows us to adjust and adapt even faster. And then looking back even higher up at, at our initial struggles for commitment as we look for um, the intrinsic hierarchies that we instill in ourselves and then also the capability of lying to ourselves because we are the sole sole parter sole party in this contractual relationship because when they say you're when you're lying you're only letting yourself down well right uh jordan peterson says this quite often he'll say you know the greatest adventure of all is to tell the truth um which there's a lot of truth to that statement in, in, in the reality of it is that in, in the process of convincing yourself that you are telling the truth, you are opening up your awareness to potential options instead of distracting yourself from the thoughts of, am I lying to myself, which is an energy expensive task. So it's like, okay, you know, when you lie that there's going to be a background procedure of doubt says, okay, was that a good time to lie? You know, that's energy intensive. Whereas if you tell the truth, there's no additional thought process that, that, that usually goes, maybe there's a little bit, but it's not nearly as, as extensive as the one that goes on with, when you lie. And, you know, the, the expert liars, they have none of that. You know, they're just, they just lie, 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 lie. And it's just like, you know, that's why they're so good at it. But, you know, yeah, you know, so. <laughs> and and this, is, this is the real challenge um, in, in playing the game of commitment making, right? Because it's it's this awareness sport of self-truth in some very deep sense. Like, do you agree with what you uh, what you think you agree with? Like, you know, like that. That's... I mean, if that if that mechanism in your brain is broken, I have true empathy. Like, 
I feel really bad for anyone who has to experience yeah. that. If, if that mechanism, do you believe in what you believe in is broken? Good luck. But, but so like that, like that is the number one element for why people struggle. Do you believe in what you tell yourself? If you don't, you're going to have a hard time making commitments because there's always going to be this, this voice in the background doubting you. Don't repeat your doubts, right? Exactly. And, you know, telling the truth is a good place to start, but there is a tightrope tight you have to walk when you do it, you know, to be careful where you are contextually speaking and how the social circle around you reacts to the newfound truth-sayer, per se. Um, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're coming close to an end on this podcast. Do you have any other comments you want to make on this, this notion of commitment making and, uh, law of attraction? I, I think we've done a good job. Yeah. You know, I, I think, think we've we really covered kind our basis here. Yeah. So, um, this has been a great episode on commitment making. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.